Today on Bike Talk, we are welcoming David Miller, the Director of International Diplomacy for C40 Cities. David was Mayor of Toronto from 2003 to 2010 and served as Chair of C40 Cities from 2008 until 2010. Under his leadership, Toronto became widely admired internationally for its environmental leadership, economic strength, and social integration. Welcome. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be on. Great yeah. work. Keep yeah. it up. Yeah. Um, and just in case Bike Talk listeners aren't familiar with who I am, I'm Andrea Learned. I'm a climate action leadership strategist, and I launched the Bikes for Climate, that's Bikes number four climate tag, during work I was doing in corporate sustainability climate action work during the Paris Agreement talks. Um, David and I know each other, I think, mainly via Twitter since about that time. So it's great to finally meet you in Zoom person. Well, it actually seems like forever. So, um, you know, it may be since Paris, which was, of course, six years ago, but in the world of international diplomacy, only five years ago, because last year's COP got canceled, so, uh, or postponed, I guess. So, um, about six years in the, in the current world is forever. So we're all yeah. friends. And I really appreciate that you're on Twitter, of course, myself. So it's a really wonderful way for people to stay connected to your leadership and for us to stay in touch. Um, so just to dig right in, um, in the climate action space, certainly C40 cities is well known, but our listeners may be less familiar with what such an NGO has to do with them or US North American cities specifically. So I will ask you and please expand, however, what is the aim of the organization and how does it help cities like Los Angeles, Seattle, and more? So C40 Cities is a coalition of leading global cities that was started by uh, then London Mayor Ken Livingston in 2005. And its goal is to use the voices and the actions of the world's major cities. So cities over 3 million, uh, originally 40 of them, hence the name but to use the voices and the actions of those mayors to help the world avoid dangerous climate change. So we do that by using a peer-to-peer -peer learning model. So when one city's doing something well, the idea spreads rapidly uh, and also using the voices of these mayors because they're the mayors of the world's major cities, those voices are very influential internationally. So think cities like Los Angeles, uh, New York, Seattle, of course, as you just mentioned, um, Paris, uh, Barcelona, uh, Rio de Janeiro, Buenos Aires, Cape Town, Jakarta. Um, and um, originally the idea was we would take the cities from the G20 capitals, um, then pretty quickly uh, after conversations with his peers, including me uh, in my then role as mayor, Mayor Livingston realized in, in the US, for example, you wouldn't just want Washington DC, you do need the, the bigger cities. So that's the coalition. Uh, it's proven uh, highly effective on addressing climate change. I know it's a long answer to your question, but I think it's important for readers to understand. For example, after Paris, and in Paris, it was fantastic. We're all excited that there was an agreement, but the hidden truth was the agreement was inadequate in a couple of ways, one of which the ambition wasn't high enough. The ambition was to hold overall global heating to no more than two degrees, and science showed that it has to be 1.5. So what C40 mayors decided at their next summit, which was a little bit later, I think about a year later in Mexico City, was that they would all commit to doing their share of holding overall uh, global heating to 1.5 degrees. And it became a condition of membership that you have a 1.5 degree 
uh, compliant plan, which very loosely means that you need to peak emissions by 2020, uh, do your fair share of having them by 2030, which would be more in North America than Africa, for example, on a path to net zero by 2050. Um, and that covers all of our cities. So we represent around seven city regions of around 775 million people. So like a, you know, a giant country. And I'm proud to say that the majority of our cities have been able to actually not only bring in those plans, but are well on the path to starting actions. My uh, home city of Toronto, for example, uh, peaked emissions, I think in 2016, a while ago anyway. And as a result of a plan we started in 2007, is now 33% below 1990 levels. So city-based climate action really can produce results. And their voices, of course, when they're, they're speaking from a platform of action, really can make a difference. That is so, I love those, just hearing those numbers uh, that you're at 1990 le levels or better than 1990 levels or at 1990 yeah. levels. Yeah. 33% below. Yeah. That's, that is so powerful. That is so powerful. One of the things that strikes me, David, is that each city, the, the, the mayor, you know, who's representing the city within the coalition, it is kind of up to them also to be really leveraging their own influence and their leadership and their voice right, in this whole big cause. And so I know for a fact that, you know, I know you are really good at that, of course, um, Anne Hidalgo's Paris team, et cetera, is, is kind of that realizing that there's this leadership and the influence you have speaking from your platform, demonstrating from your platform, how, tell me how that works and, and are each of the mayors really involved and are their teams really on top of that aspect too? Well, I tell you, you raise a really good point because those um, voices of the mayors matter locally, they matter nationally, and they matter internationally, you know, all three. And the interesting thing about our organization is there's no dues. Ah. But what happens, it, it's an it's a organization of committed mayors. So uh, if a mayor changes, for example, and the city is no longer taking bold climate action, you can be invited to leave by the membership. So one of the things we see is this group of mayors really takes action. Mayor Hidalgo was a perfect example. You know, she's taken very bold action in trying to transform Paris to a place that is much more green, literally, in the nature sense, is a place that is far more accessible for pedestrians and cyclists. And it has a fantastic public transport system. So, you know, it said, we have a fantastic public transport system. Why are we prioritizing transport by cars when it creates all sorts of issues, local health issues, pollution, climate change? Why don't we prioritize transportation for people? And uh, to do that is very bold. And of course, she was uh, chair of C40 while the Paris Accords were being negotiated. So there, there was a lot of symbolism in her actions as well on the international scale, but she's been influential locally to help um, build a huge base of support for necessary climate action. She's been influential nationally and influential internationally. I think she's a, a really good example of what is possible for a leading mayor to do. She is incredible. And that was one of my questions um, that she's so noted and she's 
sort of the one and in my work in the bikes for climate kind of pushing that I'm doing, I find that I have to keep saying, look at what Anne Hidalgo is doing and also look at how she's amplifying it and also look how she's being seen riding a bike in Paris, taking pictures of herself riding a bike in Paris. So she really is exemplifying that leadership and that influence. I'm not necessarily seeing that from a lot of the other mayors in C40 cities. And so that was one of the reasons for my question. Like one of my takes as a communication strategist will, and to your having been a mayor, I would ask you this too. It's like, do mayors sort of, this is gonna sound weird, but you know what I mean. Do mayors get jealous that other mayors are being seen like that? And will that motivate other mayors to want to do that? So i.e., you know, is there a mayor of, I mean, I don't know if the mayor of LA is seen riding a bike, for example. I don't know. I haven't seen the mayor of Seattle riding a bike. How that political will that Anne Hidalgo is really just representing is incredible. I want to see, I want that to turn into something where other mayors are like, ooh, let's model after her. And I'm not seeing it so much now. Can you tell me a little bit about being a mayor and how hard that is to do or why some wouldn't do it and, and all that? Sure. Well, yeah, you know, mayor, one of the reasons you see what see Mayor Hidalgo being present a lot is she's bold. She's incredibly charismatic. And so, you know, she gets a, a lot of coverage for her, her actions. And one of the interesting things about what she's done in, in Paris is that there was a lot of controversy around what she did, but she won election relative re-election relatively easily. And it shows that people are there. And part of the gift of mayors is you understand, particularly if you're like me, I came from municipal politics. I've been elected for nine years before I ran for mayor. And if you make a real effort to do the number one thing that matters in politics, which is listen, it doesn't mean that just to do whatever is, you know, popular or whatever loud voices are telling you to do, but really listen and understand where people are coming from. So even if you have a different solution than we, they want, at least you can come to them on their terms. The best mayors have that gift. They really listen and really have the pulse of their city. You know, for me in my time, Richard Daly was the mayor of Chicago. He, he was a great, great mayor. And he, he did a ton of work on climate never got very much credit for it, but a ton, particularly around buildings, which are so critical, um, you know, not as uh, sexy maybe as electric exactly. vehicles or, yeah. you know, or cycling, but really important. And Richard Daly lived and breathed Chicago every day. Like he just loved that city and, and knew the rhythm of it. And that, to me, that's what a great mayor is. And I think Mayor Hidalgo showed that because her re-election showed she actually was listening to the people in Chicago or of uh, Paris, maybe Chicago <laughs> You know, not the loud voices that were really against making a transportation system for people that made it easier for people to get around a city and faster and healthier. And, uh, and I, I believe that um, most C40 mayors uh, are like that. Some are quieter than others and, and, you know, lead differently on this issue. And some take a different leadership role at a, a different time. You know, um, when we uh, hosted the C40 uh, uh, Copenhagen event around COP15, which was six years before Paris, and it failed, as you, you know, uh, the city's part didn't fail. But the mayor, then mayor of Copenhagen, Mayor Beauregard, commissioned a new bicycle to be developed by MIT, which was sort of an electric assist bicycle 
before the mayor's conference. It was host, co-hosted by C40 in Copenhagen. We had over 100 mayors there. And there is a, a video of me very badly singing eight days a week, riding oh. one of <laughs> these bikes around Copenhagen. I must see it. Permanently on YouTube. Okay. <laughs> but I, you know, in answer to your question, the very best mayors are really gifted communicators because they listen. And they they need to speak to their values and what they're trying to do. But if they do it from a place where they've really listened, they're more likely to pull a coalition of people together to, to support the measures that are needed. And you know, one thing we do know, urban residents are very aware of climate change, particularly the last few years. We've seen wildfires in Los Angeles and, and Australia, massive storms. Houston has had at least three floods in the last five years that are supposed to occur every 500 years. I mean, it's extraordinary. Houston has a climate plan that reaches C40 goals as far as is possible from Houston. It's a bit more difficult there because they don't control the electricity grid at all. Right. <laughs> but, you know, Houston, the world capital of the oil industry, has a very good, bold climate plan. And why did Mayor Turner have the political room to do that? It's because of all these big storms. People get it. They get that there's something wrong. And if you can marshal that knowledge and goodwill through your own communication skills based on listening, you can do a lot. And I, our best mayors do do that. They're not, you know, some are better on some issues than others, I'm sure. But uh, that's what our best mayors do. Yeah. And one, just a kind of a note there, I actually grew up in a small town called Benton Harbor across the lake from Chicago. And so Chicago, in a way, was my growing up big city. And I don't even know that I really understood that he was, that Richard Daly was that good on climate. So I appreciate you saying that. And also, but I did know that he represented Chicago. Like, I mean, I I even felt like a resident of Chicago because like I said, that was the big city we went to. And it was, he was so connected to it. So I really agree with that. And I see that in Anne Hidalgo and just, I'm excited that there are some that are being more visible and sort of understand that listening, but she just really is somebody that I point to. So I'm looking forward to seeing more mayors, especially in North America, start to do that so I can really amplify them. Um, All of that is great. That sort of leads me to your book, really the name of the book is solved how the world's great cities are fixing the climate crisis. And there's chapters on every aspect of it. But of course, the one that was most interesting to me and for this purposes is the one on transportation. So on that note, Paris, of course, was a big one in there. Tell us a little bit about the key cities you highlighted in that chapter and why their examples were the ones you chose to highlight. To answer the second question, second part of the question, I got to go back one step. Okay. Um, Because there's something I, I missed in the introduction about cities. C40 did a study in partnership with the uh, World Engineering Consultancy, Arup, that shows that about 70% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions can be attributed to cities. And that includes greenhouse gas emissions that are outside cities but required for their existence. For example, an electricity plant. If you have a coal-fired plant that's in Benton Harbor and it's serving Chicago, it would count as Chicago's greenhouse gas emissions for that calculation. And of that 70%, the vast majority are in how we heat and cool buildings, how we create transportation systems, um, how we uh, manage our waste, and how we generate our electricity. So the the basic thesis of the book, and it's the basic thesis of C40 really as well, 
if 70% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions are in urban areas and they're in those four areas, then if we address those four areas, we can help the world avoid dangerous climate change. And it's, it's, the book's pragmatic in that sense. I think it's hopeful because it yes, shows a path. It's real, right? It's a real path. It's not made up. Mm-hmm. And so in the transportation sector, I try to focus on a couple of things, really three, the importance of public transport, the importance of active transport, and the importance of electrifying transport. And the short thesis really is, and I, I may not precisely put it this way in the book, but the short thesis is, we need to ensure our cities have sufficient density and are built in, a, in such a way that they can support active transportation, people walking and cycling, this idea of the 15-minute city that's really accelerated during the COVID response, can support excellent public transport systems, and can electrify private and public transport where people aren't using active transport. That's a critical part to this. And, you know, the good news is there are really great examples of that being done somewhere. The challenge is, can we do it everywhere quickly enough to solve the climate crisis? Yeah. Each of those areas, of course, the public transit, the active transportation and electrifying everything 100% resonates with me so much as part of what I'm just banging a drum on constantly now. One of the things I'm interested in is this term active transportation. So I, we know it's a term because we're in cities and in bikes and all this stuff, but that's the whole thing with car culture, which is North American car culture, right? How do you get, and, and as a mayor and as somebody who's listened to the people of Toronto for a while and kind of all this, what are you seeing with regard to starting to switch mindsets about getting out of the car and what active transportation is and all the benefits, right? The health, the air pollution, the getting there faster, you know, not having to find parking. Anyway, any things that have emerged with regard to active transportation and selling citizens on it? Well, I I think different places will come to this in a different way. You know, in some parts of the world, C40 cities start the conversation with their residents about air quality. And I think there's a powerful argument to be made. For example, China has had a pretty huge advance in a whole range of things, including on electrified transportation, which I'm sure we'll get to in a minute. And I think there's a persuasive argument to be made that that ability and necessity for the Chinese government to invest in clean energy started not with international pressure, but with concern from residents of cities like Beijing about air quality. So that's one way to have a conversation with people. Another way is, you know, COVID has forced white collar workers to stay home. And people have all of a sudden realized that they actually need to invest in their neighborhood and they want a neighborhood that's full of life and is economically successful. This can be traced all the way back to Jane Jacobs, right? That was her model. Her model was people live and work in their neighborhoods so that the corner restaurant, if it's a residential neighborhood, will have lunch trade from people working there. And if it's a you know business neighborhood, they'll have dinner trade and breakfast trade, not just lunch trade. For example, it's a simple example, but her very strong belief was that urban economies and neighborhoods are much more successful when people live and work in the same neighborhoods. And I, I think the necessity of dealing with the pandemic and the necessity of people working from home has supported mayors who are taking bold action around walking and cycling 
particularly based on this idea of a 15 minute neighborhood, which is loosely what I just said. Basically, you should be able to get your daily needs for entertainment, for recreation, for work, for food, necessities, shopping within about 15 minutes. Different places interpret it differently, but we've seen globally a huge rise in cycling infrastructure, in walkability of neighborhoods, in greening of neighborhoods, which matters a lot and makes in some countries it's the difference between being able to walk comfortably and not if there's a tree canopy. Um, you know, Freetown in Sierra Leone has a huge tree planting program called Freetown is Treetown. Love it. Right? But really in their context, a very important part of adaptation to, to climate change and an important way to, to provide people a safe and cleaner urban environment with a lot of people who are desperately poor and you know walk or take uh, very basic public transport because they have no economic choice. So there's a whole range of, of layers to this. Uh, yeah, I love Freetown, Freetown too. But you know, Barcelona, Montreal, Paris, uh, and many others have really, really promoted the infrastructure to allow that, in essence, allows us to safely work from home and get around our neighborhoods. You know, Toronto's put in more separated bike lanes in the last year than it had in the last 20. Wow. Was, when I was in office, it was a huge political battle. And the same people I was battling with then who fought bitterly every chance to have an extra kilometer of bike lanes are now merrily, literally the same people, now <laughs> merrily putting in, literally, yes. I, and I'm thinking of one in particular, but I won't name them. Okay. <laughs> well, this is the thing, right? I totally agree. In Seattle, we're banging this drum and saying, you know, ride your bike to work, short trips, et cetera, et cetera. And then it takes something as horrific as COVID. And I'm looking around my little neighborhood and it is going to be a lot of people that work at Amazon, right? And drive their car downtown to Amazon and kind of, or Microsoft drive across the lake to Microsoft. And it just so overnight did shrink. And I would see, and this is interesting too, I think I would see dads in particular with their kids riding bikes in the middle of the day and the joy on their faces and the, and then they bought the ev i mean the e-bike rather because we have a, a manufacturer here in town that's pretty well known and so everyone's like oh and they just immediately bought one it was really quick david and so it was it's we needed this horrific thing to happen that reset our whole brains i think that's that's too bad i'm you know i'm glad this is coming out of it but and again, to your, I'm hoping that it sticks, right? I'm hoping that this behavior change sticks. And the other thing that I've noticed that when you list all the C40 cities, they're amazing. A lot of these cities are places where people choose to visit, right? I'm yeah. going to go to Barcelona. I'm going to go to Copenhagen, right? And then they get there and like, oh, it was magnificent. It was glorious, right? We walked, we did, 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 did. and then they get home and they don't vote and they don't tell their political leaders or they don't participate, this is what I'm thinking happens because they come home and they do this. So it's really interesting, the disconnect between where people are choosing to travel and love it, and then they come home and they don't think they can demand it or they don't, it's really interesting, I think. I think uh, American cities are complicated. There's, you've got some fantastic mayors in, in the States. There's one mayor county in, in Des Moines, it's really excellent. He's not a member of C40, the city's too small, but. A lot of America was, if not built around the car, 
was rebuilt around the car in the 50s and 60s, Los Angeles being the critical example. And Toronto, by contrast, didn't rip up its streetcars. Mm. You know, we didn't privatize them and sell them to Ford or whoever ripped them up in Los Angeles. And we benefited from that. So that, you know, there's, there's a historic issue that's challenging. And it's one of the reasons that I think from a strategic perspective, public transport is extremely important because it gives people the opportunity. If you have a really good public transport network and safe walking and cycling, it gives people a chance not to own a car. And a lot of people, once they start using those kinds of systems, discover they really like them and it's much easier. You know, we don't own a car. And uh, I'm lucky because uh, in Toronto, I live a few steps away from the subway stop and two more steps to a reserve bike lane uh, running east-west and another one running north-south. So I, I've got safe options. But I, I believe that the public transit backbone gives you the chance to build those more compact cities. And what we've seen in the pandemic is a thirst for that. The pandemic's been tragic on many, many levels. No question about that. But we've seen people, I think, recognize what, what they want. We've also seen some bold action. Lisbon done some very interesting things because some of the challenges here, people can live sort of downtown and walk, but it's very expensive. So Lisbon did two things during the pandemic. They're using the EU recovery funds to build new transport, new public transport, think new subways. Um, and they also took uh, short-term rental tourist housing, tourist accommodation, and outlawed it. Ah. And then said to people who had apartments that they used to rent to tourists short-term, we, the city, will rent them from you. And if you give us a lease, we're going to re-rent it at a lower rate to uh, low-income workers in what are now called essential op occupations who work in the city but live outside. Wow. So they did a dual thing where they improved public transport and made it easier to live in the city and more affordable. And that's not only good for climate change, good for air quality, it's good for society, it creates more equality, it creates a real society because people are actually living there. It will support small businesses that aren't just for tourists, are for people. Um, and is very transformative. Medellin's doing something similar on the public transport. And this is a, probably a bit off topic, but Medellin also, basically, there's a lot of Venezuelan migrants there at the moment. When the pandemic hit, they basically said, we're all in this together. Uh, wow. We're going to regularize you. You can all work. And you're all entitled to whatever health care we can give because the pandemic's made us all equal. We need to solve a collective problem. We've got to solve collectively. So we, we have seen, because of the urgent and extremely serious nature of dealing with this global health threat, we have seen much more collective thinking about how to deal with another glo existential global threat, which is climate. Well, it's interesting what you're saying about Lisbon. It basically is they were given the opportunity to sort of sh demonstrate, try it, you'll like it, right? You know, try, we've got these new subways or this new transit or these, this new bike infrastructure it's here it's sort of gleaming now try it then also like try having you know people that aren't really fancy tourists from other places live in your buildings instead you know we'll help you do that so that's that's the thing that i'm seeing a lot and let's get into evs next but this idea of 
try it, you'll like it. Like, you know, giving cities and giving residents of cities the opportunity to try these things that for some reason they've been fearing. And I will say specifically, it seems like the US is such this bizarre car culture case. Any opportunity though that I've seen for somebody who's resisting e-bikes or resisting whatever, and then they're suddenly kind of forced to take the subway once when they, I don't know, go to Paris or something, then they're like, oh, I'm a complete convert. So I just see that there's a ton of opportunity in presenting the, presenting the kind of the support to try it because you will like it. <laughs> it just seems like you'll really like it. A, a lot of the, particularly the transportation solutions uh, around climate change are things that are challenging to bring in politically. But once they're there, they're the kind of thing that people think have been there forever. And, yes, and that's it. They, don't get rid of it. I want more. <laughs> Don't get, and that's the goal. I mean, it's a hard political space to get to people saying, "Oh, I disagree with this a year ago, but now don't get rid of it." But the classic example is Ken Livingston, who brought in a congestion charge to London, England, that was so controversial. The leader of his own party, the Labour Party, Tony Blair, told people not to support it before Livingston's re-election. Like, can you imagine it'd be like Joe Biden, you know, attacking a prominent Democratic mayor? Right. Right. And he, not only he won re-election, it was incredibly popular. And why was it popular? Because he was smart. He didn't just bring in a congestion charge. He was solving a real problem of congestion. He was solving a real problem of air health quality. The studies showing the health condition of um, young people uh, in schools in, in London's core are appalling. It's terrible because the air pollution. And he provided a solution. He used the money from the congestion charge to do a massive increase in public transport, huge numbers of new buses, and built more reserved bus lanes and all sorts of things to make the bus network work much better. So he gave a solution. And to me, that's the art. You know, you don't just identify the problem, you provide a solution. And that's what you're talking about. It's been forced by you know this awful global pandemic, but people now see with their own eyes, hey, this is kind of good. I like an e-bike, it'll go up the hills in Seattle. I got all sweaty riding my own bike. Um, <laughs> From your perspective though, as a mayor, see, and this is what I don't understand, because I, I get that and I'm always trying to help I want to help more city leaders like figure out the community kind of the smart strategic communications around this. My question is, is they have these ideas. They know that they're bold. They've got the political leadership to do it. But the time between making these decisions, being bold, having it all work through its processes, then having the results there so that the citizens can experience it. That time is a long time. So how do you hold them? It's a practical challenge in <laughs> government. It's a really practical. I mean, my what I did and my, the art to, to my mayoral team, we were very activist. Every council meeting for seven years, we had one really bold public policy initiative about poverty or housing or street involved homelessness or transport or climate or equity or, uh, you know, helping young people in low income neighborhoods. Uh, every single meeting, there was something really bold. What I learned over time is getting a policy passed politically so it's uh, a law is only the price of admission. Mm. <laughs> right? you've, you've possibly unlocked the front door okay. or maybe you've just taken your keys out of the pocket. Mm. But you've got to go in the house and you've got to furnish it mm. and you've got to clean it and um, you know, you've got to pay the mortgage. 
So for me, there were a bunch of things. There are bureaucratic things that matter. You have uh, a system that's been created over however long the city's existed. You know, in Toronto's case, way over 175 years. And you've got a transportation department that's been taught this is what roads are. Right. They're for cars. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to succeed in implementing, you need to clean the house. And I don't mean to throw everybody out, but you need to make it clear what the priorities are and ensure that the system respects that. And I use some strategies to do that. So on public transport, we had several major projects and they take a very long time from creation to inception. But because I'd been elected for nine years before, and I'd been on the, <clears throat> the board of the transit commission, TTC in Toronto, it was very clear to me that if the mayor didn't step in, there was a real risk to projects not happening. So I had the chair of the transit commission and his staff brief me monthly on the progress of the projects. I had the city manager and the CFO brief me every two weeks on the financing for the projects and really drove action that way. The challenge, you only got so much time as a mayor. So you really have to pick which things you're gonna drive. You know, what are you gonna drive? And my 